There's a chapter in my book for Allison called Scooter Winks. It's about the uncoincidental coincidences that followed after Allison's death. After I started my podcast, Kevin Bergen, a friend of mine who I met in the course of our fight for meaningful gun control, loved that chapter in the book. He said, Andy, you need to talk about this one on one of your episodes. It's something a lot of people can relate to. So I took his advice and here we are. My nickname for Allison was Scooter. I have no idea where I came up with it, but I started calling her Scooter ever since she was a toddler and it followed her as an adult. She never minded and I think she would have thought I was going to scold her if I ever called her Allison. Even her friends got in on the act and called her Scooter too. My podcast are all about storytelling. And this is a good one, as Kevin would attest. And it's an uplifting one at that. Now, I suspect that there are some of you listening right now who haven't read my book. You should, of course. And maybe you will after I read this chapter to you. So here goes from For Allison, Chapter 9, Scooter Winks. On September 19th, 2015, Barbara and I headed to Roanoke for the annual Greek Festival. WDBJ had been an official sponsor of the festival for many years, and the station has a booth near the entrance to the festival site, held on the grounds of the Holy Trinity Greek Orthodox Church. The booth is continually manned with local news personalities, bringing good PR for the station and an opportunity for viewers to see their favorite TV friends in person. I knew the event was going to be excruciating for me. The year before, Allison had become a fan favorite at the Greek festival. It reminded me of a conversation we had had before her first appearance for WCTI in Jacksonville, North Carolina in 2013. It was shortly after she started with the station, and she was preparing to attend an event at the Chamber of Commerce. WCTI had provided her with a stack of her glossy headshots to sign and hand out. Dad, this is stupid, Allison said. Nobody's going to want me to give them my picture, signed or otherwise. You'd be surprised, I told her. Remember, you're on TV. People think you're a celebrity even if you don't think of yourself that way. Allison was astonished that people wanted her autographed photos and wanted to be photographed with her. The one that really shocked her was when this little Asian woman approached her table, speaking haltingly in broken English, and asked if she could take a picture of Allison. Sure, Allison said. As the woman snapped a few photos of her sitting behind the table, Allison said, Why don't we take a picture together? The woman beamed as one of her daughters took a snapshot of the two of them. Dad, she didn't think she would be allowed in the picture with me, Allison told me later. It was so touching. Allison's career in the spotlight had begun. On a visit to Jacksonville later that year, I ended up playing golf with the mayor. When he found out who I was, he told me in no uncertain terms that Channel 12 needed to stop messing around and make Allison the official face of the station. He wasn't being patronizing. I could tell he meant it. At the Greek festival in Roanoke, 
Barbara, Chris, and I were back where Allison had held court just one year before. Her fans loved her, but the Greek organizers were especially taken with her. Certainly they loved the publicity that her live morning reports provided in the lead-up to the festival, but it went much deeper than that. As she did with so many, she had made a connection, a bond. No one loved her more than Charlie Terracetis, one of the festival organizers. Charlie is a big athletic guy with a bald head and a distinctive goatee, jet black above his mouth and gray below it. He could pass for a Spartan. We passed the carnival photo cutouts where the year before I'd stuck my head in place of the discus thrower and we briefly stopped at the WDBJ tent to say hello. Then we made our way through the crowd to find Charlie, stopping along the way to speak with well-wishers who recognized us. Chris received particular attention since so many people saw him on WDBJ each day. People stopped him to offer a few kind words and even a few hugs. As usual, it was both heartwarming and gut-wrenching. We had become walking emotional triggers for anyone who faintly knew us. We spied Charlie on the patio at the corner of the grounds. He was hovering over a massive grill covered with lamb and chicken kebabs, the smell delicious and intoxicating. As he had the year before when Allison introduced us, he gave me a big bear hug and then put my face between his two big hands, giving me the traditional Greek kiss on both cheeks. I was hoping I'd see you here, he said, his eyes watering. It just crushed all of us. She was part of our family. Thanks, Charlie, I said. We had to be here. She would have wanted us to be here, and I know she loved you guys. Of all the events she covered, this festival was her favorite. Charlie smiled. Go get some food, and I'll meet you at the table, he said. On the way to the food line, I bought a Greek beer and a bottle of Greek wine to share. We filled our trays with the wondrous offerings and sat down at one of the many long tables set up under a massive tent. We were interrupted several times by well-wishers. While they were strangers to us, to them, we were part of their extended family. They had lost Allison, too, in their own way. Charlie joined us midway through the meal. Barbara poured each of us a glass of wine, then put the cork back in the bottle. As I talked to Chris and Barbara talked to Charlie, I missed the first of what I've come to think of as scooter winks, little bits of unexplained phenomena. As we spoke with one another, the wine bottle's cork popped out, landing in Barbara's lap. Barbara and Charlie just looked at each other, frozen in a what-the-hell-just-happened moment. Did you see that, Barbara asked? Chris and I hadn't. But the look on Charlie's face told us she wasn't making this up. There was no explanation for it. It was just Allison letting us know she was there in spirit with her family and friends. When we were too full to eat another bite, we thanked Charlie for his hospitality and then said our goodbyes. It was the first time since Allison died that I felt her soul was still with us, and it granted me a small sliver of peace. Scooter continued to wink at us in the weeks and months that followed, a series of little non-coincidental coincidences. Before Allison's death, I'd always been skeptical of the 
quote unquote signs from the afterlife, whatever that is. Well, I'm a believer now. Those winks happen. Some people will think this is just nonsense. Had I not experienced them, I might say the same. But Barbara, Chris, and I have experienced the unexplainable. For example, Allison once told Barbara that she thought it would be cool to have a pet snake. We ended up getting Clarice, a friendly corn snake. After our meeting with Michael Bloomberg, we came home and discovered that Clarice had shed her skin and then vanished from a completely escape-proof aquarium. Now, maybe an octopus could have found a way out, but the aquarium's lid was sealed tight. A month later, just as we were about to hit the road to scatter Allison's ashes, guess who showed up? Clarice was in our bedroom, headed underneath the dresser when Barbara retrieved her. How Clarice escaped her tank remains a mystery, but the timing of her return felt like a sign. There is an iconic picture of Allison, a screenshot that Barbara captured of her sitting at the anchor desk, a wistful expression playing across her delicate features. I printed it and framed two copies of the screenshot, one that sits on my desk and the other on Barbara's. For weeks, the picture on Barbara's desk would turn slightly, maybe an inch at a time. It happened during the day, and it happened overnight, and sometimes it happened multiple times a day. I put a business card holder parallel to the base of the frame to gauge the movement, and sure enough, within a day, they would be out of parallel. I jumped up and down next to the desk, trying to see if the movement caused by walking could cause the picture to move. It didn't. And besides, we weren't walking around in the middle of the night, and the picture still moved. I don't know how else to explain it. One of my favorite winks occurred in April of 2016, when paddlers in the area were able to take advantage of the rain and hit one of our favorite spots, Kibler Valley. It was a reunion of sorts, since I hadn't seen any of them since Allison's death. One guy I'd known for some time, and we'll call him Nick, he gave me a big hug and issued the standard, sorry for your loss. But I don't agree with what you're doing, he added in the next breath. I was so taken aback that I don't even recall what my response was. It was probably the standard, look, nobody's coming to take your guns away line. We all put in and made it through the first big rapid. There's a drop-off between the first rapid and the second. It's not particularly difficult to navigate even for an inexperienced paddler. But lo and behold, Nick, an experienced paddler, flipped his kayak. He burst up from the water huffing and puffing as he dragged his waterlogged kayak back to the riverbank. I asked if he was okay, but it was clear his pride was the only thing injured in the spill. I paddled over to another friend, Delane Heath, who had heard my exchange with Nick earlier. Nobody swims here, I said to Delane. I think Allison flipped him. Delane laughed. Yep, she sure did. In addition to paddling, I go on a hike or do strength training almost every day. This deeply ingrained workout ethic 
continued after Allison was killed, and it is critical to my physical and emotional well-being. After a workout, I like to reward myself with a cold beer and an evening dip in the hot tub. Prior to Allison's death, the hot tub was simply a place to relax, think, and occasionally have an epiphany of some sort, usually work-related. The hot tub took on a new function after Allison was killed. It became a conduit of sorts, a place where I could have conversations with my scooter. I climb in with my beer, stare up at the sky and say, Hey, scooter. She always replies, Hey, Dad. I don't know if our conversations are real. Maybe I'm simply inventing them. But they happen. I only hear her voice in my head. But wherever she is, I know she hears me. When I'm in the hot tub, I can feel her presence nearby. I may sound like a goofy medium, but our family has always done things a little differently. Hot tub o'clock is when I commune with Allison. I gaze up at the stars and I ask how she's doing. And from somewhere within my head, I hear her reply. Depending on the day, I melt down. I've probably filled that hot tub with tears over the years since her death. As I sat in the hot tub one clear night, I was in a dark place, darker than normal. The usual unrelenting heartbreak had been replaced by acute agony, the pain of her loss so incredible that I felt like I was being crushed. I sobbed uncontrollably, barely able to catch my breath. Not knowing what else to do, I pleaded to the stars above. Scooter, let me know you're there, I rasped. Please let me know you hear me. The words had just left my mouth when suddenly a brilliant meteor streaked overhead and split into three magnesium-bright branches, scratching fire into the sky. It was more spectacular than any meteor I've ever seen before. Or since. It was no coincidence. Allison heard me. Another day I was sitting in the hot tub in the afternoon. The clouds coalesced into the unmistakable form of a winged statue holding a globe. Now we'd found out a month earlier that Allison had been nominated for an Emmy for Best Live Reporting. It wasn't a token gesture. It was for her work. The award ceremony was the following month. I hadn't asked Allison for anything that day, and I wasn't even thinking about the Emmy Awards, at least not until I saw that formation. It was Allison telling me she was going to win. And she did. Later that summer, our dog Jack became really sick. He was losing weight, not eating, and having trouble relieving himself the telltale signs of cancer. When I left him at the vet to be tested, the results were already clear to me. I was a blubbering mess. I couldn't bear another loss. I climbed into the hot tub that afternoon and wept. Please, Scooter, don't take him yet, I said. I know you want to meet him at the Rainbow Bridge, but I just can't take it right now. I looked skyward hoping she'd hear my plaintive pleading. Through bleary eyes, I watched as the clouds formed the unmistakable image of Jack's head. 
The results came back. Jack didn't have cancer, just an easily treatable bout with colitis. Whatever she did, Scooter bought Jack another two years. When he fell ill a second time, there were no signs in the clouds. This time we knew. They're at that rainbow bridge now. When Jack's time did come, I changed my desktop background image. It had previously been a picture of Allison and me standing atop the Mayan pyramid at Koba. But I changed it to an image of Allison and Jack on the bank of the Smith River. They both had big smiles, and the photo, though wonderful, made me long for the days when they were both on this earth paddling together. I figured I'd leave that background on my desk for the foreseeable future. Two months later, Barbara and I decided to get another dog, a golden retriever puppy we named Bailey, Allison's middle name. After selecting him, we had to wait a month until he was old enough to take home. Around that same time, my desktop background reverted back to the picture of Allison and me at Coba. It just did it by itself. It was as if she was telling me, Dad, I like that picture of us better. But the occurrence that took my breath away happened shortly thereafter. I bought an Apple Watch and paired it with my phone, setting it to cycle through more than a thousand images in my phone's photo library. The first one that popped up on the watch's screen, however, was Barbara's screenshot of Allison at the anchor desk, a wistful, thoughtful expression playing across her face. It's the same photo that inexplicably moves across Barbara's desk. That wink left me speechless. I know, I know. All this sounds made up like a load of bullshit, but I promise you, it's not. And that's the end of the chapter from For Allison. There have been other winks and nudges in the years since I wrote that chapter. I wish I could say they come with a frequency they did immediately after she was killed, but thankfully they still come. On Christmas Day of 2020, I was beginning a workout, and the first song in the shuffle on my Apple Music was Mark Cohn's Walking in Memphis. Barbara suggested that song as the one Allison should use for her dance recital when she was a junior in high school. I uploaded the video to YouTube, figuring it was a good place to archive it. This is one of many that I had to lock down after the trolls descended on it immediately after she was killed. I haven't been able to watch any videos of Allison since 2015, regardless of the content. Just too painful. But that day when the song popped up, it was like her telling me, Dad, it's time to show your friends how great a dancer I was. So I posted it on Facebook. The vast majority never knew she was a dancer. But not just a dancer. She was a lights-out dancer. The feedback was as overwhelming as anything I've ever seen, including my recent appearance on 60 Minutes. I always thought Allison could have been on Broadway if she hadn't gone into journalism. And so I watched her grace and fluid motion once more. And once again, it brought tears to my eyes. But I was so happy to see her again 
and for giving me another wink and a nudge. And yes, Scooter, now all my friends know what a great dancer you were. Barbara, Chris, and a few of Allison's close friends paddled the Natahala the day after we sprinkled her ashes into its clear rushing waters. As we passed the spot on the bank where we had the ceremony, a lone yellow tiger swallowtail butterfly fluttered above us in the middle of the river. It hovered and stayed with us for some time before playfully flitting away. In Scotland and Ireland, the appearance of a golden yellow butterfly near a deceased person's resting place is ensuring that the soul is in a good place, such as heaven. I never knew that until I googled yellow butterfly meanings. Well, it goes beyond that. A yellow butterfly shows up whenever we paddle or hike. It's always there and always gets close enough to give us a kiss. It's bittersweet because I believe it's Allison. She's gone, but her spirit endures in another form. The only time she ever deviated was once when this big, beautiful purple dragonfly flew to my kayak and sat patiently on my hand, never moving as I drifted downriver. Dragonflies also have the same symbolic meanings in mythic yore. I tend to have faith in those interpretations, but whether it's a dragonfly or it's her preferred yellow butterfly, I know it's my scooter, always watching over me and letting me know that love never dies. Well, that's the story. A special acknowledgement to Marianne Kennedy, Pat Bunch, and Pam Rose for allowing me to use their music from Safe in the Arms of Love, a song Allison loved. If you liked what you heard, please share my podcast with your friends. And if you really liked what you heard, please consider becoming a contributor to the podcast. I'm Andy Parker, and I'll be here next week with another episode of The Cultural Scavenger. Thanks for listening.